1927, Ryunosuke Akutagawa unveiled his thought-provoking masterpiece, Kappa. Through the experience, Akutagawa invites the reader to reconsider their understanding of humanity. The book is sometimes viewed as a biting criticism of Taisho-era Japan. The country's progress, the wars, the encroaching capitalism and Western thought that has entered into the nation. Japan was a country that hardly resembled what it used to look like just decades prior. But it could also be viewed as a deep and piercing psychological dive into the psyche of a person. A person suffering with deep and personal pain. It's easy to see how the suffering could lead people to have a warped version of reality. But even if critics can't agree on what it means, today we can all agree that this is a masterpiece of literature. But where do we begin? Well, let's start with the creatures. Kappa, well, I'll probably just pronounce them as Kappa through this, roughly translates to river child. They're a long-standing figure in Japanese folklore and are not an original creation of Akutagawa. With river gods existing even in the oldest books of Japan, their shadows, the Kappa, have probably been depicted as early as the Edo period. Kappa are believed to be a humanoid species, shorter than an average human, but much stronger. Their scaly skin, webbed feet, and hands allow them to swim easily through the water. Their protective shell keeps them safe while their hard elliptical dish on the top of their head serves as a wellspring of strength when filled with water, but that power is significantly diminished if the water is drained from it. Their intelligence is high and their beaks are powerful, strong enough for crushing cucumbers or even human bones. Their conduct is portrayed as mischievous, involving thievery and playful scares amongst young children but also brutal and savage, encompassing acts of abduction and even murder. Nevertheless, the kappa became intertwined with Japanese customs and practices. Through this book, Akutagawa presents an insightful portrayal of these mythical creatures. Each kappa is carefully developed to represent a distinct societal ideal or moral value. As for the plot, well, the tale is presented through an insane asylum patient identified simply as Patient 23. He shares a captivating account of his visit to Kepaland, where he immerses himself in the company of these creatures. And just as Patient 23 goes on a journey, we hope you too, the reader, will challenge yourself as you gain a fresh perspective of how we should ideally engage with one another. I know we put a lot of effort into this, and it still won't be perfect, but this is our ode to one of the most important and frankly underrepresented pieces of world literature. For anyone who likes or shares this with friends, Thank you. We're glad it inspired you. For now, let's jump into Kappa and talk about what makes this an absolute masterpiece. Hopefully we give you guys some new things to think about. And uh, yeah, we'll see where the night takes us, if you will. So in the preamble, it's pretty short, right? Like it's each of these sections is very brief. And here is where we're told about the story of Patient 23. And oh yeah, babe, by the way, Patient 23, he's in the insane asylum. But don't worry, <laughs> I have, quote, tolerable accuracy, end quote, when it comes to, have, you know, copying and retelling this story. So, you know, we, we've got kind of a, an interesting setup to this where... Uh, do we call this a frame narrative? Like everybody talks about the narrator being Patient 23, where we're told it's a reasonable you know facsimile of what patient 23 says but why create this frame narrative in the beginning i think it's a double triple cross <laughs> so to speak that idea of 
well, maybe you won't believe him because he's insane asylum. But if we're up front that he is insane, then maybe it is sane to believe what he is saying. And if he believes it, then that's okay. Do you think this this patient 23, right? And let's go through the story as we as we believe him, right? He, he ends the story with a change in face and then yells at you, get out, you rogue, you idiot, you jealous, obscene, impudent, self-conceited, cruel, selfish animal. Get out, you rotter. <laughs> That's kind of fun to do. But do you think this is like <laughs> an epiphany for him? And this story is, I don't know, is it the, re- the realization of all the horrors of humanity, the monsters of humanity? I think it could be taken that way. I think that when you peel back the layers of the onion, it's very easy to see the negative. I think I've said it once or twice before, humans almost feel innately drawn to the negative. And as you see those, mm, it's tough to not only see those. There's a lot to discuss here, I feel like, with what is ultimately just a very innocent opening chapter of like, yeah, I heard this story from Patient 23, but I think it sets up a lot of questions about when do we revolt and how do we fit into society with a self-image even? Not only self-image and the masks we wear, as we've talked about so many times, which this story I think has a little bit as well, but also that idea of the social currency you talked about of when we're in society, we aren't who we truly are, right? And I think that maybe patient 23 is free. He can be whoever he wants. He can say whatever he wants. And in the fact that when you're out in society, you're never truthful. We always tell those little white lies. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. You're not good. You're depressed or you're sad or you're bored. But you tell that little white lie because that is the social norm. And patient 23 has thrown those out the window and is just fine with being straightforward. And sometimes that's a little bit refreshing. Yeah. Let's talk about part one, all right? Patient 23, or who I may just refer to as narrator, to be honest, as we move through this. Well, he sets out on this journey through this foggy morning, right? He's, he's trying to travel forward, and he's like, wow, yeah, this mist is pretty bad. Maybe I should head back, right? And that's when he sees the magic. He sees a kappa, and he's like, oh, I got to go get it. And he chases this kappa down, essentially <laughs> kind of falls down and becomes unconscious and and goes on a couple of like really unimportant details like oh i think that bridge was called like kappa bridge or whatever it was uh to to ultimately kind of set up the story we we are in modern day japan okay so insane asylum doing good so far misty morning okay (laughs) sounds good sounds good you know insane asylum patient 23 falling down this rabbit hole Mm. Well, now we're entering into like that Alice in Wonderland, Gulliver's Travels type of setup where we're we're leaving into another land. Are are we is the mist and and this this hole are we piercing the subconscious of what patient 23 like you says calls it out as it is while we kind of hide and create these masks. He's piercing some sort of veil that makes it very acceptable to talk about what is ultimately normally very taboo. But is patient 23 literally going there? Is he going there in his mind only? Or is he literally being transported there? Is this where he's being swept up by the tornado? Allison, you know, Wonderland style, as you mentioned, Gulliver's Travels, but Dorothy as well. The 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 characters, the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion, those are people in Dorothy's real world. If we take the the interpretation of this, maybe 
maybe patient 23 is going there. Maybe not just in his mind, maybe in his mind. Again, we don't know. That's the great discussion of this. Oh, I was totally going to ask that question later on. I really, I know you, we've read enough stories. I knew you were going to have the Shutter Island like this was all actual reality, just a perverted view of it. I knew you were going to have that interpretation in there. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could be. And then, which is even more heartbreaking because then is patient 23 getting the help he needs or are people just enabling or just indulging his, you know, fantasies? Let's maybe dance back and forth through interpretations. I might start with some questions assuming that it's real. And of course, we can always backpedal to the idea of like, well, what would that mean from like a hallucination, insane mental illness perspective? And, and let's see if we can kind of balance that line. I think that's fair. Part two, we enter basically alternate Japan, I would say. We, we have him waking up unconscious and he's being carried on a stretcher through the streets. And he's like, oh, this this looks like Ginza in Japan, which if I recall correctly, was a really nice shopping area in Japan, too. Um, and there's like a stethoscope being held up to him and, and there's Kappa all around. Kappa. I might just call it the American Kappa throughout this whole thing. Right. But but we've got doctors. We've got onlookers. We get taken back to like this this small little cottage next to Dr. Chak, Chak, however you want to pronounce it. And, and Bag <laughs> comes over and visits him. There's a lot of parallels to, you know, the. The, the Kappa are, are myths in Japan, right? And some people still believe in them. Some people have like the, the no fishing signs up near water to warn kids away from the water. You know, is it a fairy tale to teach them about the dangers of water? Do they actually believe in the Kappa? Kappa? I, I don't know. But you have these parallels where it starts out very surreal, where if he really did bump his head and is just waking up, you can see how he might see them as distorted, a distorted version of Japan, if you will. This part really is where it, I feel like it starts to get funny because you can imagine uh, patient 23 waking up. And I just imagine kind of like the movie Spaceballs, where he kind of like groggily wakes up and looks around. And he's like, when did I get to Disneyland? Like, what's going on here? Because everything looks so similar, but also he's definitely not in Kansas anymore, uh, i.e. Mm -hmm. Japan. <laughs> Well, I mean, they've got art, right? In terms of pictures on the wall, they have pianos in their in their bedrooms. Like, we're very immediately led to believe these aren't brute animals. They, they clearly have a culture. They have art. They have sophistication. They've got stethoscopes, so they've got medicine, which again is part of that myth that you know that the kappa actually did teach you know the Japanese how to set bones and casts and stuff like that. But it, it plays with that. While at the same time, almost kind of sets up that questionable, are we talking about Taisho era Japan? And when 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 Bag kind of like lunges at um, the narrator and then kind of like, you know, corrects himself when Chuck comes in, you got to kind of ask the question, like, what's going on? Right. And if these are people, you know, do we see some of the violence of people? Some of the ways that people will, oh, the doctor's here, I need to behave better, and will again put on those masks in front of other people. We can see a lot of sophistication to the Kappa introduced in the matter of a couple of pages. I don't know, Kutagawa is a, a master writer, and you can see these layers introduced so fast in the story. Oh, interesting. See, I took Patient 23 as kind of the monster here. He's the abnormality, right? He's the one that's different, and of why maybe he may be persecuted. Oh, I like it. Story's so good. <laughs> well, he's he's certainly entering this world of alienation, right? He doesn't fit in. And we're going to start to learn about how various Kappa don't fit in either. Like, that that's 100% a true way of looking at this, right? In number three, I, I didn't find this... I mean, I mean, it's interesting, 
But in the context of like what we do on this channel, it's not crazy because it's basically a lot of Kappa facts, right? We learned about their average heights being a meter, weight 20 to 30 pounds, webbed appendages, elliptical uh, dish on the head that hardens with age. Their skin is sympathetic to the environment so they can blend in, kind of like chameleons, right? Uh, that hence why he probably was chasing bag earlier and lost him in the grass. The only thing that's strange is they have this abdominal pouch that they don't cover up with clothes, right? And, and that's kind of the first huge satirical punch to the face when they said, oh, well, we find it funny that you guys do cover up things. Two right? things here. I loved this chapter, the fact of it finally gave me a visual representation. Of course, I immediately had to Google and start looking up some, you know, artist interpretations of what Kappa looked like. And I just thought it was really cool. So if you're reading this story, wait till this part of the story, read it and then start looking up images, because I know that I was really tempted to look up what the Kappa looked like, knowing that it was a type of Japanese mythical creature. But the other thing here that I thought was interesting, talking about like the clothes and what not is this really hones in on the cultural identity well why is it the way it is who made those rules up as a society or as a whole and how did they evolve to it which is really neat right i saw an article here recently just a very well, it wasn't even an article it was a post and it was basically someone kind of said how much skimpier can gym clothes get and it was actually kind of interesting all the replies where people are saying like, well, I'm not naked. I'm following the legal rules. So I'm not skimpy. This is fine. And some people are saying, yeah, I wear skimpy clothes and I like the looks that I get at the gym. I work out to have good looks. And you start to compare that to over time, right? If you took, you know, perhaps someone wearing yoga pants or men with no, no shirt, basically sometimes at the gym and you stuck them in the 1940s, mm-mm, mm-mm. That ain't going to work. You can't walk around in yoga pants back then in terms of modesty and such, right? So 100%, we create those standards, right? Which is why the Kappa can find it so hilarious that we do come up with them. Like, why do you do that? Why do you hide so much of yourself behind? We talked about the mass. We talk about lies. Like, these are part of that story of we're inventing and perhaps covering up and dressing up things. It might not be bad, but it is something that I think to aliens, perhaps, because there's not many other free animals in this world that dress up. I don't think they have the intelligence or ability to manufacture clothes, don't get me wrong, but that is purely a human desire to cover up, to shape things, to to make things look different than they actually are. Yeah, it it is weird that we're the only animal on the planet that does that. And I don't, I, I, it, it must be a social thing of our, our modesty of wanting to cover up certain parts of our body. Uh, I, I love wearing clothes though. And, and I think it is something that maybe does separate us also. And maybe it does separate us from the Kappa. And maybe that's, that's, uh, one of the things that makes us human because the Kappa are, are, are chameleons essentially, right? As you said, they can change their own color naturally. They don't need clothes to change what they look like. They can just do it. And that, again, alienates them further from how much different that they are from us. And I realize now, after having said out loud that we're the only animal to do that, I know this is bad, but I was thinking about decorator crabs because I have seen the movie Moana. So I do know that there are some animals that do that. So I guess I overspoke when I say we're the only one. But anyways, I think you guys get the point. Let's talk about chapter four, <laughs> uh, because we have some deep topics here with this antinatalism and obligation here. The narrator heads to Bag's house. Uh, as his wife is about to go through childbirth. 
And during the birth, the baby is asked if it really wants to be born. Narrator continues to go on about how Kappa can even lecture about the existence of God within 26 days of birth. And he reads a poster about genetically selecting Kappa, I'll say, for, for mating and eliminating the evils of hereditary. And I'm sure that the translation varies a little bit differently. But the narrator thinks it's just ridiculous that they think they can get rid of hereditary evils. And that's when the young, you know, student Kappa points out like, well, actually, you guys have been doing it for years with sons chasing servants and daughters chasing chauffeurs. And I had to put my book down after this. I was just like, huh, that is actually a very warped mirror look at, you know, hereditary evils of money, right? Because if we if we think about Japan, particularly with the like the Edo period, they had, you know, like that, that, that hierarchy where merchants were the lowest class, the, the wealthy class were low in Japan, which is always shocking, I think, for a lot of people to hear that they were yeah. below farmers, they were below samurai who couldn't even own anything, right? Like ownership and money were evil, right? Like it's, it's preying upon other people. So here when they say, oh, you know, you also are getting rid of evil by having the rich marry the the poor right like that class divide in the in the separation almost kind of like a obligation of noblesse oblige that if you were born into wealth you ought to marry less wealthy so that you can change the the disparity between classes almost and i just thought that was brilliant it's the evening of the the playing field i when i read this part all i could think about was the the like little social media videos of when people walk around and do interviews on the street and they're like, Hey, you know, what is your ideal person, you know, man or woman, husband, spouse, person. And they're like, Oh, it makes this much money. And they're, they're this tall and they have these characteristics. And it's always like an astronomical amount of money. They have to make a hundred thousand. They have to make $250,000 a year. And then they always tell them, hey, do you know the average person in the U.S. makes like $48,000 a year? And they're like, what? No way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just it, it's so true of that, that the your self-worth and then the worth of others is so tied to money. And that that is something that the cop are pointing out is a way of, uh, you know, exercising your right or not your right of how you will uh, you know, pick traits of a mate based on something that really ultimately has no inherent value of what the baby will have as its genetic traits is something that is uh, outside like money, that is an external factor like money. Yeah. And of course, we are having a lot of next generation discussion with that, right? And, you know, you had Bag's uh, wife giving birth and they asked the baby, do you want to be born? Right. That's a very big philosophical question. It's it's absurd, right? Because particularly with with human babies, like they're they're not able to make that decision. It's not possible. You must have a surrogate making that decision upon behalf of humanity. So to to have this flip is really interesting and hits hard, I think, as a reader, because now you're entering entering into this natalism and antinatalism discussion of is it ethical to bring someone else into this world and who bears the supposition of that decision? Because it's not you, it's the child that's going to have to bear either the pain or the pleasure of being born and they don't even get to make that choice. Yes, exactly. 
this is this is deep here because if you if the child had the consciousness and the wherewithal that they did as I don't know the, the moment before they died or their their soul or whatever they're being if they knew everything would they make that choice because you have the in one school of thought life is suffering and pain but there in order to have suffering and pain there has to be pleasure and good as well right but as in the story the child doesn't want to be born because it knows all the suffering that's going to come about and and i think of like my own issue of like i'm i'm we we talked about before we're getting older and the aches and pains and it's only going to get worse like the good things i've had in my life does that outweigh all the suffering that i've gone through in my life would I make that same choice had I had the choice? Because I didn't have the choice. And I think that's what it really comes down to is none of us chose to be born. None of us chose life. It was thrust upon us for good or for evil or ill. <laughs> right. And, and it's, you know, you have, you have a lot of different views on this, right? Usually a lot of, I mean, like when you look at Shinto, like the natural way of Japan, you're supposed to create more than you destroy. Like natalism is inherent in it. Like that's part of like their worldview of how like the two original, you know, gods created the world. And, you know, you also have the view of like, well, you can't deny that there's natural disasters, disease. We just went through this pandemic that, you know, millions of people unfortunately didn't make it through. You, you've got aches and pains of getting old, like we talked about. And, and you have these really tough questions to answer of, you know, is the absence of pain good? And the answer is almost always yes, right? It's always good that pain isn't there, I think. You know, I mean, obviously you're going to come up with some weird situations like this pain actually means that you're improving your stretchability of your muscles. You know, get out of here. We're having a serious <laughs> conversation about that, about what does true pain mean. And they're, they're the absence of pleasure, you're like, okay, well, the absence of pleasure isn't bad. But if someone else has pleasure and I'm denied pleasure, that is bad. Right. So therefore, mm. there is actually more negatives with pleasure being able to be denied it as other people get it than pain. Right. So theoretically, you have some really tough questions of like, oh, well, it almost seems like the absence of pain would imply the world is more suffering and imply that it's actually unethical to bring someone into the world. But that would mean the end of the human species. Right. These are tough philosophical things that that some people can kind of wrestle with, like Akutagawa himself. Right. You mentioned that the child didn't want to come in because he said, you know, Kappa's existence isn't good. And he said he didn't want to inherit um, one of his parents' illnesses, mother, father, I don't remember yes. which one. Yeah. But that's Akutagawa's story, right? Because he was he was deathly afraid of inheriting his mother's illness his entire life. It haunted him, right? And and he injects those fears into this child. I wonder, is is that part like Akutagawa writing part of his own life of, I kind of wish I had never been born. And I wonder if he truly thought that sometimes. I don't think that's a far stretch because uh, spoiler alert, if you don't know, uh, Akutagawa takes his own life. And I think that's pretty evident that he, he wanted his suffering to end. I think you brought up a good point that misery loves company. If someone else is suffering and I didn't have to, is that fair? Or if I have to suffer, shouldn't they also suffer with me? I mean, that's something that can bond us together. I don't know. And is lack of suffering 
positive or is it indifferent? Because I feel like there is a third option there. Yeah, there, there's a lot of different ways of breaking down like the natalism, antinatalism talk. Um, let's, let's go to the next section because it gets even more philosophical with this art and morality part here. Uh, we're, we're introduced to the poet named Tak. I like Tak. Tak was a good guy. And, and the Kappa poets are a lot like human poets, right? They got the long hair. They smoke. Love freely. <laughs> woo! And, and he, sa- he says the family system does nothing but inflict hardships on Kappa. <laughs> I'm going to get to that. Uh, he would surely not bat an eye at sacrificing a genius for the sake of a hundred common beggars. And he says that he's a Superman and attends the Superman club with other artists. And I just, oh my gosh, there's so much here. I don't even know where to begin because um, I guess you got to start with the Superman is obviously kind of the translation of Ubermensch, which, you know, you you and I have talked a lot about in Crime and Punishment. That's that Friedrich Nietzsche idea of becoming a, a, a superman like a, a more powerful man not in strength of of care of of a physical body but in character of you aren't taking on the morality that everyone else gives you that you invent your own will and suppositions of what creates value in life and don't take that on from other people right and that's what this superman club is right like we need to get beyond you know good and evil Right, and that that's actually one of Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche's books, you know, Beyond Good and Evil, and that's kind of what they're doing is they're exploring art for being art. If people could just be people and not accept society's expectations, they would be supermen. They would be able to take on and create their own value in life, which you know Nietzsche always argued was was the biggest purpose in life is to celebrate what you have and go for worldly pleasures as opposed to suffering in life with expectations of afterlife uh, rewards. Do you think that this is the most important chapter in the book? This is the turning point for patient 23 when he starts falling into becoming, for a lack of better terms, kappa, kappa-ism. He's becoming more kappa than he is human, and this is the, the point that he realizes subconsciously that he would rather be in this world than his own. And that's what drew him here in the first place. I would bet it's the most important chapter, at least for Akutagawa, we can argue. He, in Japan in general, I would say, because, you know, Nietzsche was a huge influence on not only Akutagawa, but also at the time you had Soseki. More recent, you had uh, Yukio Mishima. All of them were heavily influenced by Nietzsche. So I think it was very important for him to introduce what does morality do for, for Kappa, right? And, and you had the artist in the story that they were, they were doing things sexually, they were drinking heavily, all these things that I think, you know, the older generation or a lot of people who might be more conservative would look down upon, right? And he's rebelling against that to say that this is what allows and creates people to have their full expression, their full freedom of thinking by by shedding off these layers. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I think that's kind <laughs> of what's being conveyed here in this story is that the Kappa and these small group of Kappa who are kind of lower class, right? Like in terms of who we've met so far, in terms of rap, in terms of talk, you you don't have a lot of money and wealth. They're the ones that are able to kind of throw off those those shackles of society. Yeah, you, you mentioned that the, the good and evil of it does 
their social standing play a role in that is the cultural expectation. And you even mentioned this beginning because we have these these stereotypes of what a poet is supposed to be, this free thinker and what they're supposed to look like and how they're going to act. Is Kappa breaking the norm for patient 23? And I feel like that they are. Like you think he might be like a roadmap of this is how I could start living. I didn't realize I can make my own decisions of value and what was good and bad, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, he's in a mental institute being told how he's supposed to behave, how he's supposed to think. And he's going to a place that is allowing him to break those social norms. And I think that this is the time that he pivots as, you know, literally or physically to change his life and for the better for him. And that's all that matters. And I think that maybe my view of this, if, the, if we're taking again back to that, this is Akutagawa's, you know, kind of inserting himself a little bit here in the story Again, being the most important piece of the story, the crux of it is maybe if he had made different choices or if he had a choice, his life would have turned out different and maybe he would have wanted to live. Mm. Interesting point. Interesting point. You know, it's these these flips that allow us to reevaluate things that tend to be the most powerful for us as peoples, right? How often do you hear, I guess that kind of perfectly segues us into the next section that like, you know, you did this as a man, would it be acceptable for you to do that if you were a woman, right? And there's a lot of times where we have expectations of what men are allowed to do, and it's different than what women are allowed to do at times. And it goes both ways, right? And that's kind of what the next chapter does with these gender expectations, because we learn how the female Kappas are the ones that do the pursuing, right? And the men have to hide away sometimes for several weeks and how there's even lawmakers like, 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 well, why don't you, you know, have the lawmakers change the law? And they're like, oh, well, they're, they're, the women lawmakers are above the law. They would just still pursue and break the law anyways, right? You, you almost, you almost have like this expectation of power that's just switched when you flip the roles in the Kappa world too. What do you think? Is it just a gender reversal? Does this say anything unique or different to you when you were reading kind of like this this flip chapter? Yes and no. I thought that Akutagawa nailed it on the head with obviously playing up the idea of, to me, the standards of this is how a male-dominant society through most of human history has been. Imagine the inverse of that. And there's been plenty of stories and movies that have taken that of what if you know, women were the dominant species of of humanity and men were more subservient throughout human history, how it's been. And I I, I feel like that he he he's just making so much fun of it of how ridiculous that is because it's all society norms that we put it on it. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, and a lot of it just comes back to, you know, physical strength, which is a poor representation of what a, you know, gender male or gender female are capable of is based on physical strength because that was so important to humanity for so long for our species to survive. And I think that as we've grown past that and evolved into, I think, a more complex creature, I think Akutagawa in my mind is pointing out that like it's stupid to still even talk about this at all. Like either way mm. is dumb of that this is what it's supposed to be for this way or what this is what it's supposed to be this way. Either way is stupid. <laughs> do you think okay well 
what about in this chapter also we have that that bigger stronger okay so so the female is chasing this man and then she says oh you know like she 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 gets the attention of like the bigger stronger male kappa and that bigger stronger male kappa comes along and beats to death the the weaker kappa right we have some darwinian discussion here survival of the fittest here as well Clearly, there's still a strength divide, I think, between men and women here. Does does that change your opinion and perhaps how Kakutagawa presented this chapter, or how do you interpret that? Yeah, I mean, it, it does. I, I think it is a little bit time-specific. Obviously, there isn't the technology uh, influence. Uh, and again, and I would never say this, you know, to somebody uh, to their face because I am old, weak, and fragile, but... Uh, Typically, you know, men are physically stronger than women, but there are plenty that I would not get in the octagon with uh, any. Uh, but I, I think that, I mean, technology is the great equalizer, right? Uh, there, there are ways that strength is negated. And I, it's not mentioned here in the story, but I think that had there been a... A, 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 an editor been like, hey, you know, or if Akutagawa, you know, you, he and I got to sit down and talk about it and been like, what about a gun, dude? <laughs> like, do the kappa have weapons? Like, that that's a big change in how society functions is, you know, some type of advanced technology. Maybe that's why they're so secretive and we never heard about them before. <laughs> All right, let's go to chapter seven, the role of art and censorship, right? This this is the chapter where the narrator recalls, like, oh, I've been to many recitals. Hey, and on the third one, we went to this place. I, I was with, uh, who was it, Talk and Mag, and, and they're describing to me how, like, the composer, like, the title is still in German, right? And then, oh, there, there's there's Krayback, the infamous guy who gets down to play the piano, and the women, oh, they swoon for him, the the infamous Krayback, right? <laughs> and the crowd goes wild, and and that's when the police come in, right? And they yell out, "Performance prohibited!" And, and the crowd just wants Krayback to keep playing, like, no, 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 this is this is censorship, this can't be allowed, it's police tyranny and that sort of thing. Um, and that's when Mag explains that they only have two art forms which can be understood clearly when expressed. Art and literature, right? Like, that's that's the clearest form of communication. And as a result, like, oh, their sales never prohibited, and oh, those policemen must have bad ears, right? Like, they can't hear it. <laughs> wow, this this is quite the chapter for us to kind of explore here, too. Because, you know, when we, thought, when we talk about, uh, you, you taught uh, the Meiji era, in your history, well, I don't know if it was your history class or whatever, but you know, we had censorship from Edo period. We had censorship in the Meiji era with like, you know, like westernization, religions, uh, anti governmental speech was regulated. Like, like, censorship wasn't new to Japan, right? Like, that's not a new discussion, but it is part of the discussion of what should the state govern, right? What should the state allow? Should they be involved in the publication of art? And you go through like, you know, if you go through cinema, like Japanese cinema, there's clearly eras where you had like the censorship and stuff going on. So what do you think Akutagawa is really kind of attacking here? Or how did it come across from you, like from your history perspective? I feel like he's trying to just blow the doors off the hinges of saying that any censorship is stupid, that it's ridiculous that there's only these two avenues that you're allowed to express yourself and that somebody would ever have the audacity to say what and how and who 
you're allowed to, you know, express yourself artistically and that that is is completely out of the realm of what the government's job is. I think he's being hypercritical here of any any type of involvement of, you know, critiquing and criticizing uh, art forms. Now, should there be some regulations? Of course, there's stuff that I think is more uh, adult themed, you know, that should not be for children. Uh, and, and, and he would probably agree with that, I would think. But I, I think that he's being, you know, openly critical of the government of, you know, censoring, you know, saying you can't have these books or you can't have this art. Uh, you can't do this, that, that this is supposed to be a, a expression of freedom, you know, and it's control. I think that's what it comes down to is that it's one person trying to exert their control over another group of how they want to express themselves and express their humanity. If I remember correctly, at this era, Meiji era, is a little bit before, obviously, Taisho, but Japan was importing literature, textbooks from other cultures, right? Like languages that were not Japanese. I mean, obviously, here even Krayback's title, like the composer's title, was in German. And they had to get foreign teachers to teach at universities to push education and such. There's obviously a problem with identity here, too, with what does it mean to be Japanese and what does it mean to express the true self if we have to go through this filter of foreign and westernization, education, art, and uh, literature, right? Like if, if we do have to go through those means and we do have to go through it, is it censorship? Is it perversion of identity? There, there's something to be said there, too, about how Japan was struggling with what does it mean to have Japanese literature and Japanese art uh, post, post Meiji era where everything just got flipped on its head. And their isolationism is key here, right? Japan didn't want to lose a hold of its identity, the Japanese identity. What did it mean to be Japanese? And then you have all these outside influences that maybe younger generations are latching onto because they like these new different ideas, these different clothes and these different stories. And they like this different language of how it sounds and different, you know, art and colors and everything coming in. They're bombarded by this. It, it's scary for the government losing their control. It's scary for older generations seeing how the younger generation is changing and adapting and they can't. I, I feel like that this kind of hits the nail on the head that art is a way to move forward culturally and some countries uh, struggle with that. All countries probably struggle with that, but especially Japan since it was so isolated for so many centuries. So let's talk, you know, on top of the westernization, let's talk about capitalism, capitalism, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite character, Gail or Gail. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to call him Gail. I, I, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. But uh, he's the chairman, president of a glass company and an investor. He gives the narrator a letter of introduction to all the factories around town and uh, the, explains that the Kappa factories can churn out 7 million books a year and about seven to 800 machines are invented monthly, which leads to many Kappa being fired. The narrator asks Gail, well, why aren't, why aren't there more strikes with that many people getting let go? And he goes, oh, well, they're all consumed, right? The powder that we use for the books is actually brains. And, uh, you know, they're all killed and, and can turned into meat. That's cool, though. Like, you know, we're all covered by the worker slaughter law. And the narrator finds out his sandwiches are meat and vomits. <laughs> 
Oh, this this chapter is hilarious. It's such a dark humor, though, right? And and I, and I think that this is the part uh, that you need to be prepared for. But it it does show that the the grind of the machine of capitalism that will grind you down into paste it will steal your life steal your time because that's what you're selling is your time you're selling your life literally uh because that's one of the finite commodities that you have and i took it as that akutagawa is pointing out the fact that you only have this finite time that you're selling and giving away is that something that you want to do is that worth it to you i mean that's I mean, he was asked if he was like a socialist earlier, right? In terms of the people owning, you know, the means of production. That, that's capitalism, right? You have people that are willing to sell their time, their health, age, you know, however you want to phrase it, in order to get paid a set amount, right? And there's commissions, don't get me wrong. But, but then you have the owners <laughs> who own the means of production, right? They take on the biggest capital risk, typically. They're the ones that own that method. And Gail is clearly the owner of that method. And you can see he, like like many capitalist leaders at the top, taking on that risk, they're the ones that get the highest rewards, right? And that's what creates such that, that disparity in class between the wealthy and the poor, right? Like it just skyrockets a lot of times, particularly during the, the era of like industrialization, right? Like what we were just talking about the Meiji era where they like, what was it like 60, 70 years, they crammed like, 200 years worth of, of industrialization mm -hmm. in like banging out all these new modes of production moving from a feudal system of like you know the home production to more of like a capitalistic model and it was funded by the government too fastest than any asian country yep yeah it was funded by the government right so when the government's involved well that's going to become a little bit more tricky, right? Like here you have the government with the worker slaughter law, which means they are funding and allowing and supporting a violence of murdering people that aren't selling their body's health to be productive, to create that capitalistic wealth for people like Gail at the top. Well, I think that there are many other more important chapters in the book, as we've already discussed. To me, this one felt like the most important now. <laughs> and I think that is more telling of the time period that we live in and myself as well, that this one spoke to me of this was the warning of where we live now, where we have billionaires that control the government because of their lobbying. We have billionaires that control their their corporations. We have billionaires that the 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 wealth disparity is, is the wealth gap is astronomical to where we can't even fathom it. And I think this is the warning that I got out of this chapter from Akutagawa that if you allow these two groups to coordinate against all of the people underneath that are holding the businesses up, they will be ground down to dust. And that's literally what we're seeing today. And then as we're recording this, we were talking about the strikes that are happening, that the only way to combat that is for those groups to come together to try to fight that that alliance of the government and the the owners of the companies that that forge and squish the little guy below them. And, and of course, this has been happening, you know, in capitalism, you know, since it's kind of in inception. But I think this is a grave warning that I pulled from this chapter that Gutekai was saying, hey, be careful or leery of this. Well, and... It's so insidious, too, because people love the money, 
right? Like the, the, the chapter literally starts with the narrator saying, somehow I liked Gale, right? Well, yeah, because he's giving you the letters of introduction to go see all these different factories. Yeah, he's taking you to these fancy dinners where him and Dr. Chuck, oh, oh, the physician, a.k.a. the wealthy people, like he's leaving the, the lower class. He likes Gale, not because of Gale. He likes the <laughs> fact that, that he got ascended and could get some yep. of the finer and luxurious things in life. Money is addictive. He got middle management. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think you kind of introduce some of the stuff that's coming in the next chapter here. But this 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 chapter nine war, what is it good for? I think you kind of already talked to this this Korox cabinet, basically, where, you know, he introduces the Korox cabinet, which just assumed uh you know, power under their pretext that they were the promoters of the welfare for the Kappa. So this was the lobbyist that you were just talking about, right? And Rope yeah. is the powerful statement in charge of the cabinet. He's controlled by the Pofu newspaper. A Kappa named <laughs> Kwee is in charge of the Pofu newspaper. Well, and then Gail's in charge of Kwee which means Gail's in charge of Okay, going back up the ladder. <laughs> if he's in charge of Kwee he's in charge of the newspaper. He's in charge of Rope, which means he's in charge of the captain, right? And, and, oh, is he really in charge? Oh, no, it's his wife that's pulling the strings. <laughs> so funny, again, the gender thing. Um, but we, we have the we have that slippery slope, like you talked about, of who's really pulling the strings. And you see with the capitalist that it's who he who has the money is the one that can actually really steer the boat behind the scenes, which you've already pointed out. Uh, but the second part of this chapter, coming back to that gender thing again, uh, says that a woman Kappa is responsible for the reason behind the war with the otters seven years ago. One day an otter was visiting a married uh, couple, and the female Kappa hated that Kappa male, but instead of poisoning the husband, because that's what you're supposed to do, <laughs> she accidentally <laughs> poisoned the visiting otter, and a war broke out which the Kappa won. Almost all fur in the country is now otter fur. Uh, and that's when the waiter busts in and says, ah, the, the house next to yours, Gail's on fire. And Gail's like, sweet insurance money. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I think we've covered the, the cabinet thing. Let me know if there's anything else you want to cover. Should we move into the war, like what this war with the otters mean? Yeah, let's do it. I do think that it's funny, though, that uh, with the power of capitalism, of controlling the flow of information, right? And we see that again today of billionaires buying social media companies, hint, hint, to control the flow of information. <laughs> Kutaga was, was ahead of his time. <laughs> he sure was. He sure was. All right, so let's talk about this war. Did you have any ideas? Like, was this a specific war that you were kind of feeling out? Like, you have, like, the Japanese Sino War. You've got World War One. Yeah, because this was 26, right? So you got World War One. Right. Like there's, there's a couple of wars to choose from. Did you pick any specific allegorical ones or did you just kind of view it as a, a, a broader thing about a commentary on war in general? I couldn't find any specific reference that I felt like it hinted at a specific war. It felt like it was just a broad statement that Japan seems like most countries to just have war in its history, just Generation after generation, there is a war for them to have to deal with, whether they're fighting, you know, Korea or they're fighting China or they're fighting the United States or they're fighting here, or fighting themselves. It just it always seems to be that reoccurring theme through, uh, you know, the you know 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Do you think it's more about man's Kappa's desire to 
to win, to conquer. Or it's our innate thing of killing ourselves. It's like what we're best at. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a struggle of humanity dealing with its own anger. That the Kappa just have this innate desire to destroy and kill. I don't know. I mean, it is in the context of these chapters where it ate and kill their own people when they're no longer valuable, right? Like there is an element of conquering and, and, and not for the purpose of destroying, but for the purpose of, of progress, of, of utility. It's almost like putting production and personal gain ahead of seeing people in humanity and is, you know, is part of that part of the alienation problem that we experience? Like when we see all these differences and we see each other only as output or methods of labor, is that's what's causing a lot of our problems and how we differentiate and create these cliques and have these expectations of what clothes you should wear and how much money you should make in order for me to marry you. It also might bring it back full circle to our idea of calling the herd of that idea of darwinism that you get rid of the weak because we only want the strong to mm. make our country that much stronger as well and mm. that war is a good acceptable way of doing that in most of human society you know we're like killing is bad but it's sort of okay in war even though it's bad it's okay here as long as there's mm. an excuse <laughs> well i mean and that also kind of argues that point that we were kind of struggling you know wrestling with earlier in terms of the bigger kappa killing the smaller kappa also you hear at the end it's a transition don't get me wrong but you have gales rather okay with that house being burned down because he's like sweet insurance money like it's part of that that trade-off like the destruction for the wealth greed or way to progress forward in another mm. way Oh, I love it. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But I mean, there's also a positive spin. I mean, don't let I me mean, know we're kind of being a little bit negative here, but from destruction, there is growth and birth and and good things can come of that. You know, you, you got to crack an egg to make an omelet <laughs> kind of mentality. Well, look at you with the positivity. I didn't see that from you uh, out of this pessimistic work here. Very good. Very good. All right. Let's move to uh, chapter 10 influence in art rap. The student, who, if you recall, was the antinatalism student from chapter four, makes a reference to an insect catching violet is in bloom. And Rap cries, wishing that his beak wasn't rotting away. They head to Craybax, who, since the raid, oh, we're, we're, we're buddies with now. We hang out with. And uh, we can see that he lives, you know, extravagantly, but not as nice as Gale, but he definitely is doing okay for himself. And uh, while he's normally happy, jovial with his family, he's a little downtrodden. Right, and he's upset that critics have criticized him, saying that his lyrics aren't as good as the poet talks, and they say that he could uh, he can't even be a musician compared to uh, Superman Club Rock, right? So the narrator says that well, Rock, he doesn't have your modernistic fervor, Mister Crayback. Crayback <laughs> abruptly stands up and says that well, he's afraid of Rock, and that many Kappa have no ear, and he's tired. He throws Mag's book of an idiot's words at them. And uh, surprisingly, as they leave, they, they stumble upon talk, oddly. And they warn him about how, well, hey, uh, Krebak's super grumpy right now. So talk thinks that uh, he sees a green monkey poking its head out from the window of a car, totally normal there, and nervously looks about and says, he's no anarchist and bids them adieu. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's, <laughs> this was a very stuffed chapter, I feel like. Uh, can we start with uh, rap, uh, rap his, his beak rotting? What did you take from that one? I feel like that we are our own worst enemies, that 
he he's so hypercritical that he's like literally rotting within <laughs> and it's so sad that we can't just be accepting of you know what we like ourselves that we let society influence us so much do you think and this might be a little bit i'm gonna use more modern words and it is a modern way of thinking at it so it probably isn't the main intention but you know literature is what it means to a person um do you think there's some ableism discussion here with judging people based on their differences. And I don't think that's a stretch to say that part of the discussion here is judging people based on how they're different because that's basically what Akutagawa does to this whole thing is is show how some people are, don't fit into the molds or, or this person isn't chased by women, so he's sad. Uh, here we have, have the, the gender reversal, if we recall, that if he's not beautiful, he won't be chased by women, right? And... Isn't that a little bit, you know, in the context of, you know, the the stigma of, you know, Japanese women have to be married by 30? Well, if he has this this marginalized difference, is it okay for him to be thought of as different or have less value in society? Two things. I think that criticism can be positive and negative. I think that a lot of times we focus again on the negative and we hone in on those things. It's just in our nature, at least for me particularly. Uh, but the other thing is, this is, uh, and I'm going way back here to our first video. This is the Harrison Bergeron argument, right? That is everybody created equal or do you want everybody to create equal with, with rap and talk? Is... Is, is this competition good? Does, does it breed, you know, them wanting to approve upon each other because they're not equals and it forces each of them to be better or worse? I don't know. Do you think there's also a way of looking at this almost kind of like a very, you know, like Kawabata-esque way where his his rotting beak is a reminder of the fleeting nature of beauty, of of mortality even, where... In some ways, we do tie up on so many levels throughout so many centuries of humanity, beauty and love. And if one is fleeting and temporary and thus ephemeral and thus something that we lose, is that a reminder of us to cherish or look at it? Maybe. I think that is a very immature way of possibly looking at things because that's more sexual attraction than I think it is love. And there's nothing wrong with that because I think that is instinctually human as you know, you are physically attracted to somebody before you get to know them and fall in love with them. But for that to be the main maintenance of a relationship, I, I don't think is fair as you mature. I think that there is elements of that as people change, people reevaluate their version of love. It's very messy and it's definitely a net. Right. And you even have some elements of like, could you view talk that way too? Like he thought he saw a monkey peering around the corner, which I'm pretty sure wasn't there. Right. His sanity is changing. Is this the Theseus ship argument of, is he the same person? Cause beauty is one parallel. Well, here's his mind going, his personality. He's changing as a person, arguably with perhaps some deterioration in his mind is, I don't know. I took it that way. Did you think of it that way? The whole time I just kept cracking up that the insane guy that might possibly be imagining all this is having insane characters. And is that insane or would that be normal? <laughs> I'm sorry. It was just too funny to take 
almost seriously. And I, I know that just makes me juvenile when I just talked a few minutes ago about being mature, but uh, it, it just, it, it says something about how the psyche can fracture. Yeah. What about how our psyches influence each other, right? Because Krebeck has that speech here about how he was a little bit um, worried because if he influences one person, but that person isn't influenced by him in return, does that make his ideas more original? Does that make his ideas more unique, right? Like, it's actually kind of strange. I was looking up some some Kappa-related facts just, just to have background on the mythology in general. And actually, there's this YouTuber out there that literally said the exact same joke for a very obscure and unique thing as another YouTuber had just published his own video on that three years previously. Did they do it on purpose? I don't know. It's a very unique circumstance, but I wonder if it was almost just subconscious of they thought they were coming up with this joke when they actually heard it somewhere else, the way that we influence each other. Oh, that's deep. That's that. Ooh, that breaks the brain right there, right? Of can people almost subconsciously influence one another and connect beyond our metaphysical? Well, isn't that also maybe perhaps how some of these social norms get constructed? We talked earlier about the expectation of what people wear, the expectation of how people behave. You have religions, you have societal uh, responsibilities in terms of your role in like an organization or even like in a marriage that you have certain behavioral things that get created for you. It's not written down. There's no handbook on how to be a good husband, right? But through uh, witnessing and interacting with others, you start to sp uh, pick up on what you are expected to do. That's all word of mouth. That's rote. That, that is nothing that is a, uh, a rule book for life, but is instead a societal created thing that gets passed down through behaviors and influencing others. Yours is a much more mature than mine. I kept thinking of... My wife and I have had this argument many times before, and, and, and you can cut this out if you want, but what do you do maybe just with your son? Uh, I don't have a son, so I do it with my wife. When you're driving down the street and you see a Volkswagen bug, what do you do? Well, I'm not punching your wife, but I'm not punching my son either. <laughs> but if I'm in a car with you, I'm definitely taking a smack at you. <laughs> yeah, and what do you say, right? Like that's... You say punch bug. Yeah, or slug bug or something like there, you know, depending on what your regional word is. But there's no rule book for that. That's never written down. But that's a mm -hmm. thing that 300 million Americans know is, is punch bug or slug bug, right? That's a mm. thing. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Now, chapter 11 is kind of some more philosophical excerpts, right? In terms of fool always believes that all fool, all are fools but himself. Nobody has any objection to smashing idols. At the same time, nobody has any objection to becoming an idol. Mm, that, was, that, was a, that was a good one right there. Uh, to diminish material desires does not necessarily bring peace. To gain peace, we must even decrease spiritual desires. And then even one such as, if we care to live a rational life from beginning to end, we must naturally deny our own existence. Voltaire, who had made a god of reason, and his life contently, this points, we must say to the fact that human beings are not as advanced as Kappa. I probably misread some of those words there, but it's fine. I'll put them up correctly <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> um, I, I didn't have a lot to say about these other than like, you know, you could talk about each of these line items, but these felt more like just like 
ideas that he wanted to get out there. And I think you could critique each one, but I think it kind of fits into the greater tapestry that, that Kappa creates, I guess. I guess the rest of the book was more interesting to me. Uh, any thoughts from your perspective? This felt like almost they were proverbs, right? And and I remember one here, uh, and I'll read it and mess up as well as you did to make you feel better. The wisest rule of life for a kappa is to despise, and yet not in the least violent, the manners and customs of his time. It just felt like these were words of wisdom to live by that how you are supposed to behave. And 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 I kind of liked it. It felt like almost a rule book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of nice to have like a little... I'm glad it was presented the way it was, right? Like if he actually tried to weave it into the narrative, it would have been clunkier. It would have been harder to get to. The fact that it was just like, this is the book that was just thrown at me by Crayback. It actually made it a little bit more refreshing that the form changed for how it was delivered, that I enjoyed it, honestly. I did too. I I think this might be the only criticism really I have of the book, you know, a a 9.9 out of 10, uh, is if this chapter maybe had been presented in that way of when patient 23 gets to Kappa land, this was like on a plaque and it, it kind of gave him a blueprint of what he was about to experience. Or maybe at the end, like as an epilogue, uh, maybe it would have fit better at the beginning or the end instead of kind of like not in the middle, but it, it would have helped me as a reader anyway uh, with, with mm. some basic more knowledge of what I was getting into. And if maybe Patient 23 had experienced that, it would have changed his journey as well. I don't know. I, I really liked it, but I, I felt like it could have been placed different in the story. You're, you're not alone. I, I'm one of those people, like, you know when you have, like, the epigraphs at the beginning of chapter? I, I almost always skip them. They irritate me. I hate reading them. I hate reading, even though it's, like, a sometimes, like, a summary <laughs> or a theme of that. I, I just can't stand them. So, for me, I, I'm on the opposite end where I actually enjoyed how it was kind of just injected into the middle of the book. Fair enough. All right, let's uh, move into chapter 12, the punishment and legality chapter. The narrator sees a skinny kappa who stole a pen from him a while back. This was this was interesting. He informs an officer, uh, the, the guy's name is, is Gruck, and that he was a postman and stole this pen for a child's toy, but the child died, right? So therefore he's innocent, right? And according to clause 1285. Well, this is a little strange, right? The narrator heads to Mag's house where we have Chalk the Physician, Gail, and Judge Pep. Right. Oh, look, the chairman, the physician and the judge. Again, the class coming together. The rich part people. of the. Al- yeah. The, the alienation and class divide. It's it, it's it's peppered perfectly throughout this whole piece. But he asked the judge who says if the circumstances surrounding the person when causing the crime cease to exist. The, the judge is saying that if the circumstances change around this, then that then that person can't be convicted. Right. And since Gruck was a parent when he committed the crime for the crime and is not now, well, he can't be guilty, right? And the narrator finds it completely irrational. Chuck asks if they have the death penalty in Japan, says that theirs is more humane, and that's when they kind of suddenly hear the gunshot. So you'll start to see the ending of these chapters have these like, it's not a periodic statement, right? Because it's not like summarizing or clarifying the chapter. It's, it's it feels cheap to call it a cliffhanger, but it, it's starting to inject more and more of these, you got to keep reading, right? Like it started out almost as diary entries. Here's a vignette to present a philosophical idea, difference, or thing to challenge about Taisho Japan, about the psychology and suffering of a person in society. Well, now it's entering more narrative style of, of a book, 
of, oh, you got to keep right reading to find out what this gunshot is. You got to keep reading to find out what this fire is all about. Like, it's interesting how Kutagawa is starting to change the pace at which you want to consume this. It also starts to feel like it blending the lines and he's being a little bit more hypercritical. And I, I feel like this is where the critics of the story that we there there are two kind of you know groups of what this book means or how you can interpret it and again you can interpret it any way that you want but those are kind of the two the two divisions of this of kappa and i feel like this is where they start to blend of what does it mean or divide of what it means and that is is his mental state or is this him being critical of japan and that narrative is is being driven here of is he being critical of of humanity in Japan in particular? And he goes to one of the most egregious crimes there can be of, you know, taking a life and that how do we deal with that as a society? And that I I felt like there is no right answer. I think that life is sacred and, and taking it one way or the other is, is difficult for the humans and the Kappa. Well, it's hard to also bake into what does this mean from a correctional standpoint. You've got punishment, right, which is locking a person up, death penalty to end it. Um, but you also have this Theseus ship argument that we referred to earlier, right? Like for those of you that don't know, that that argument is like, okay, here you have Theseus ship. You replace one board with a new board because it was rotting. Is it still the same ship? Yeah. Oh, okay, just as one, one board difference, right? Well, what if we replace the next board? Right. Is it still his ship? Yep. Okay. Well, what if we keep doing that until we've replaced all the boards? Is it still the same ship? It's all new materials. Total. Every single thing of it has been replaced. Is it still the easiest ship, even though it's a totally different materials? Well, when we look at a person that has done a, a horrendous crime, right? What are the corrective actions, the things that they can go to, to improve, to repent, to make sure that it never happens again, to, to do punishment for what they've done, Right. And how many of those changes do they go through before they're perhaps a different person, right? And is that person the same person that would have committed that crime before as the person that's released after they've been reformed, right? There, there's, again, that that discussion of what makes a person a person and what is due punishment if that person is no longer – if they fully – repented, regretted, like th there's a lot of different ways of viewing it. Obviously, this is the hardest discussion possible because you're talking about a life, like you said. But if it's something less grandiose, it makes it a little bit more palpable to discuss of what is punishment and what does it mean to have reformed and changed yourself, your morals and your standards to fit in with the expectations of how, what is proper behavior. And if this is Akutagawa's view and, and not Una's, it is telling of him of his humanity is showing through because it's punishment, 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 not penance, penance, penance. How do we punish a person, not help them improve and become better? What is their penance to being a better human? How can we make them a worse human because they did something bad? Uh, that that's I I I, ooh, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh. Well, let's let's talk about the great finality to uh, boost our moods here. They find Tak has you know taken his life, unfortunately. Um, with a gun to the head, and there's a female Kappa crying in the room. Gail remarks that it was selfish, while Chalk, the narrator, and Judge Pep just look upon. They just look on. Now, what's 
a little bit kind of jarring is the way Krayback enters. It, it's almost like meant to be more comic. Like he arrives and is yelling like, oh, a wonderful Requiem quote, right? And leaves with his eyes shining and a crowd forming around him. He's pushing through because he's going to go create art out of this, right? And uh, that's when we have that mag reports that Kappa Life might be reported as perfect to some, uh, but they still believe in a power outside of themselves. And again, I think this is more of that transition to the religion chapter. So we'll put that aside for now. Let's just talk about talk because some people have postulated, okay, you could read this as just a straight Taisho commentary on Japan allegory, right? But is talk Akutagawa, right? The way that he, he struggled with writing, the way that he started to see the monkey, that he started to have these mental disorders and, and illnesses that were going untreated, that he felt the only way to, you know, in terms of either increasing pleasure or decreasing pain or just ending it all, the great finality, he took that decision. And what's most haunting about that is this was published, you know, written in 26, but published, I think, March of 27. You know, Akutagawa took that great finality step himself as an author just three months later, right? It's it's very haunting how he approaches the the final decision in life in this story, along with some of the other stories that we talked about at the end of Kukutagawa's career, that, that he's reflecting the suffering almost into the character. I got to be honest. I just about cried when I read this. Like, I'm even getting like a little bit emotional upset because like he didn't think he was good enough. And that's like heartbreaking. Like we're talking about Agutagawa, one of the greatest writers ever. And you and I would probably agree we're putting him definitely in top 10 hard look into the top five of every author ever in human history. And he doesn't think he's good enough. He took his own life. And it's just, that's heartbreaking that was there no friend? Was there nobody there? Is this telling of society of how little we know of each other, that somebody couldn't see his pain and help him, man, that just breaks my heart because like, I just want to give the guy a hug. <laughs> well, it's hard too because we know his art, right? We we don't know him, right? And sometimes oh, is that great is that great divide? Well, okay, well here hear me out. Is that great divide that the art can be fantastic, but the artist must suffer something that has become so untenable for some. They don't know how to escape because the only way they know how to push forward is to produce that art. But that art comes at the expenditure of great pain and suffering. And they don't know any other way to escape that cycle or that expectation of them. But I feel like I do know him. He's talk. I mean, if that's what we're saying, if that's how we're interpreting it or how we are discussing it, then we do know him. This is as close as we can get to know who he was as a person if he is being truthful with us. And and I, I feel that... It's almost like an insult to his memory to 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 not say that we we don't know him and, and no we didn't get to talk with him we didn't know him know him but I think we know enough of him that we could say we know his suffering and that we would be better people for helping him get through that suffering and we wouldn't let him lean on his artistry to be his only outlet and I think that that's something that talk i.e. Agutagawa, needed and didn't get. Now, we get this amazing piece of literature as a result, but 
I would trade it to have the artist back because, again, as we've talked about, we lost his life, which is much more precious than any piece of literature. I think it also causes kind of like a small callback to that uh, censorship chapter where they say sometimes art is the only true way and is very clear to convey truth, to convey what the artist mm. means, right? And sometimes Agreed. that we we really do feel that way, that sometimes the reason why we live is because it is, it is teaching us some, something and connecting with us emotionally, like we're reacting as people in a way that if you tried to just tell me your philosophy, I probably would get annoyed probably wouldn't want to listen but when it's (laughs) when it's presented through art for some reason it's able to it allows me to open up and be more truthful about some things and i wouldn't had it not been presented that way well it's kind of like any piece of uh, of art right you get to consume it at your own leisure pace and how you will be able to interpret something that allows you to be more receptive to it All right, let's talk about life as a religion, which is probably one of the last big topics in this piece that hasn't been covered yet, because we have the narrator ask Rap, like, you know, what what religion do Kappas have, right? And it's like, oh, well, we got the life religion, right? And it says you can translate it to, quote, to go eating and drinking convivially and uniting sexually, close quote. And they agree to visit the Grand Temple, where Rap begins talking to an old Kappa, uh, old Kappa, probably to cover up his excuse for not coming to temple often, LOL. <laughs> and also laugh. I church. Uh, the, well, yeah, it, I mean, and the narrator gets bored. I mean, well, any 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 religions where you have like those ceremonies where young kids probably have a hard time connecting or even teenagers, like, like obviously the narrator even gets bored, I think, when the old man's talking at one point. But they, they worship the tree of life with the green and the golden fruit where the gold is the good fruit and the green is the evil fruit. And they go through several busts. I wrote them all down here. I'll put them up on screen. But basically, they talk about how, well, there's no scriptures. The youth don't really participate. Uh, It's kind of like an inverted gender of Christianity, a different explanation for how the world was born. It ends with an old man admitting that he, too, has problems believing at times, which I think is, I guess, maybe another mouthpiece for Akutagawa, who did go through a lot of different religions. And some people talk about his his Christian tales, his Christiano Mono or something like that, where uh, they say that he entertained it, but it was almost more of like the usual Japanese ways of assimilating than changing themselves to conform. Like there, there's there's a very different way of how the Japanese absorbed and assimilated religions as opposed to conform to them, if you will. And that's probably to the fact of we mentioned before in the history of Japan of them being so isolated and having only a couple of religions and then being exposed to so many religions in a short period of time. Everybody was kind of grasping at straws of what do we believe now because there's all these different narratives that we have a choice from and that was probably very tough for a society as a whole Mm -hmm. have you ever heard the theory like you know how like the kappa like their their physical appearances they have that that sada the dish on their head that is what holds the water right the bowl yeah yeah and, and you know how they have like that, like, like my dad's got this haircut, no offense, dad, but the, the, the stripe of hair. <laughs> he didn't watch our videos. The stripe of hair, like around the head, but nothing on top, right? Oh, like, the that, Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah. yeah. Well, have you ever looked at like the earliest missionaries that went to Japan, like the Portuguese monks? How they oh, have yeah, like yeah. They shaved had the, heads? Yeah. They, they kind of look like Kappa. 
don't they? Oh, I see where you're going. Keep going. Keep going. So many religions have these concepts of uniting sexually, which is what it says here. Uh, they don't all agree about drinking, but, you know, <laughs> loosely like this, but they all have this way of explaining, explaining the purpose of life and how to live life so that you have this eternal reward. Well, you'll notice that the six busts that he kind of goes through in terms of Tolstoy, in terms of Lindstrom, who we've talked to previously in other Akutagawa Talks playlist down below, of how uh, <laughs> Lindstrom was like one of those writers that when he when he read, like he took notes in the in the marginalia of the book, and it was something that was just so influential where he actually thought it, he he thought his worldview changed after reading Lindstrom, to the point where he's like, oh. Maybe we're not alone. Maybe there is something more to life that I can't explain, basically. And you'll notice that he kind of goes through how each of these busts talked about how to get the most out of pleasure, right? But sometimes it's pleasure for a purpose of what? The afterlife, as opposed to the eternal life, as opposed to the present earthly life, right? We start to have that discussion going back to the Nietzsche thing that we mentioned earlier of, you know, Nietzsche thought that religion was one of those things that was confining, because people would accept the suffering and even purposely suffer sometimes so that they could go towards that external reward. Well, here you have people that have been ending their own life or people that have been living wildly successfully during life in terms of trying to gain their maximal pleasures. It's all about how, how does your life fit in in terms of like the pleasures, the immediate reward, and also that eternal reward. I also think about Religion tries to explain the unexplainable. It tries to give meaning to life and, and many other things as well. Do you think that Akutagawa here interjected religion, one, so late in the story, uh, heavily interjected it so late in the story, but two, of that he himself doesn't understand its purpose in his own personal life, of how it will influence him because it feels that way kind of on the kappa of almost like an afterthought because they live a very, you know, material world life and they don't seem to have high regards for, as you said, an afterlife or an eternal life. Yeah. Yeah. The materialism is clearly a part where even the kappa themselves aren't, can't even pay attention during, during it. But you also feel a bit of a hypocritical mouth service religion aspects to it too where they talk about participating and he's like, yeah, and truth be told, I can't pay attention either. And then his wife comes up and says like, oh, you stole my money again, right? Which I think we're meant to assume is bad and not, you know, frowned upon because they do have laws that protect, you know, rights in this town, right? In terms of insurance when, um, uh, was it Gail's house burnt down? Like you do have some proprietary property rights here, but you start to realize to exactly to your point, especially as we move into the seance chapter, that the materialist views of the Kappa and when we start talking about religion, there's clearly even the mouth service religionist people out there too. The seance, right? So uh, <laughs> this seems like anti-religion. <laughs> Do you think he did that on purpose? Like a seance? I don't know. It, it feels too, well, I, too on the nose. <laughs> I don't know if I would call it anti-religion. What I would call it is, okay, well, so what happened was uh, in this chapter, we have the the legend of Tox ghost appearing in this house which which okay well okay maybe we do need to talk about this because his ghost is showing up in images because a photographer bought the house and is now taking 
pictures at this house and talks ghost images appearing in all these photos, right? So soon we have uh, 17 specialists come up to investigate with Madam, I think it was MME, I think if I have my notes correctly here, uh, who goes in to do the seance and is possessed by talk and basically talks for him. So we'll say, I might say he, I might say her, I might float back and forth here. But this Madam mm, is talking for talk and talking about his last work of art. He asks about himself. And ultimately, at the end, the 17 specialists agree this absolutely has to be right. We confer that, that yes, this is accurate and there actually was a ghost here of talk. By the way, Madam, mm, I know you used to be an actor. Here's your money for your services. Have a great day. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, another chapter that's just hilarious. Again, there's there's a lot of humor to be gotten here. I, I feel like we come back again, full circle of, is this really happening? Or is this in the mind of patient 23? Is there something in the real world that he's seeing that we're getting glimpse of now because we have an actor acting for real or pretend? And is the pretend or real for our benefit or for patient 23? I don't know. I viewed it as playing, so we've talked a lot about societal expectations. You should behave this way. Well, in Shinto, did you have, when we did our, our Shinto kind of like dive where we both read some Shinto texts, did yours talk about how, I think it was if someone died while they were like really mad or violent, something along those lines that theoretically their, their essence stayed there's a japanese word for it where like it stayed and oh we're trapped that in that area. state of being yes 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 yes, yes. yeah, yeah okay, i remember okay, okay. so 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 you have that belief that maybe you know talk taking his own life with with the gun uh dissatisfied disaffected by life even that you know maybe he could be one of those people or at least that's the belief that a lot of like you know shinto would believe in so is 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 it real is is it really the ghost inhabiting it i think kutagawa is really making you believe that it is not actual really there it's madam mm, putting on a performance as she was a previous actor and getting paid actor wages that's my view of it right but again it's it's way the way that we look at how we're expected to behave you can see how some people can take advantage of it right the way that some people can be the actor and pass as real for some people and just for the sole purpose of of monetizing of, of almost almost kind of like when we go back to that capitalistic discussion of of gaining money lucrative greed for the purpose of oneself and is that bad well i don't know sometimes when we think about being deceived we typically think that that's not a good thing yeah i thought about this of like to whose benefit is the acting happening is is it for talk is it for patient 23 is it just in society general i, I thought about this as well of is this is this akutagawa's you know maybe uh call out of how religious leaders are performers maybe and coming back to that capitalistic of tithing or you know donations to you know a religious organization I, I feel like he might be a little hypercritical here of them the way that I kind of took it. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's going to have their view, right? Like Kutagawa has his view and, and this is our interpretation of his view. So again, don't, don't take it as if like, we think that this is reality, right? Like this is us trying to interpret literature. Um, you know, how do we see ourselves in it is, is, is a good question. Because you see that's even part of the discussion where they say, like, hey, talk, you know, 
what was your last what was your last poem and it was basically this this very famous basho like one of the greatest haiku japanese writers of all time right it's like probably his most famous uh, haiku actually as well and apparently talk wrote it right and <laughs> any any regrets about it and he's like I, I, my only regret is that instead of a frog i wish it was a kappa right i wish i had interjected ourselves into it because people love to see themselves in this literature and, and I wonder if that's part of that's part of the story. It's part of the discussion here with, you know, when Akutagawa is going to be writing the story, he's going to be interjecting his a lot of his own philosophical ideas, beliefs. And he's going to challenge them the way that he sees things. That, that's true. I guess that makes more sense of how he, he he's wrapping up the story, coming to a close of kind of putting a nice little bow on this. Uh, I just it, it feels for the first time in the story, uh, almost open-ended of we're not, because you had mentioned that we're moving towards of like, I need to finish, I need to finish, I need to get that, you know, cliffhanger completed of this is one where we don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's okay. In 300 years, when the copyright is expired, it'll sell like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what year is that? I'll buy a copy. <laughs> Long copyright for the Kappa. All right, so... Uh, the penultimate chapter, chapter 16, is the, uh, I'm going to call it the Benjamin Button chapter. This is where the narrator says that he's feeling homesick and he he wants to get back home to Japan. Uh, whether that's reality, whether that's actually leave this little Kappa land or whatever. Uh, he decides that if he can't find out the way throughout the city, he's going to have to go to the suburbs. Right. <laughs> so he meets this old Kappa who reads and plays the flute, but uh, has the appearance of a young boy of 13 turns out that he is reversing in age. He was born old and is now getting younger. And this is the chapter where he says like, well, uh, the only way to get out is the way that you came in. I have no idea how you get there. But then he pulls out down this rope for the skylight for the narrator to leave and tells him that he's got to repent before leaving. Yeah. And we just kind of take the ladder rope up, right? Like that's, that's kind of interesting. Oh, going to ascend right up into the heavens <laughs> and he'll find his way home. All right, so let's do a quick discussion about Benjamin Button because that is the, the the reason why that tale was kind of written was how does age impact us, change our decisions about where we belong, where we fit in, right? Because you know, when you look at friends, they're the same age, right? You don't hang out with people that are half your age. Typically, I mean, don't get me wrong, you do have people that are older and younger, but typically when you have packs rolling together, they're the same age, right? You got people that are into the same hobbies. You got people that are able to do the same things in their career, even. Uh, typically, you don't have a ton of crass, uh, class crossing either. You have people that are of the same class hanging out together. Is that because they're worried about other classes taking advantage of them? Not? I don't know. But age is another one of those great separators that can alienate us, that can create separate groups of people who will find connection with each other, right? And if you reversed in your age, you would have yet another divide in your life, like like the beak that's rotten in terms of, you know, not fitting in, you know, be, be visually appealing. If your age constantly reverted, well, there's another thing that you wouldn't be able to share with someone eternally, another thing to divide that, that greatly divides people in terms of who they choose to hang out with. And, and it's one of those things that like, man, like how many different ways can we look at what what would makes it so difficult for us to fit in? I thought about this of, is this 
Japan's way of not fitting in is its divide, its separation, again, its isolation from the rest of the world. If something like age is your division and you're Benjamin Button, you never fit in with anybody ever. Because if you're an old man as a child, you work with nobody. And then as you are reversed or the inverse of everybody else your entire life, you'll never fit in anywhere. And maybe that's how Japanese society kind of felt is it never felt like it was in with anyone because it had been so itself for so long. It didn't have any of those connections or ties with any other societies or nations. It makes you kind of wonder what is the significance of time, right? In terms of how much time we spend with someone, in terms of even if you look at this narrator, well, he's been in Kappa land a lot longer than you would have expected, right? And because he spent so much time with them, being shocked by their ways, being attracted by perhaps some of the more honest ways of fitting in or not fitting in with the Kappa land as opposed to Japanese society, right? Time plays an element in how close we feel to something and how much time and exposure we've had to something that it can make us feel and even have greater connections. So when time doesn't work with you, right? Does that also mean that you aren't even able to have as deep of a connection with some things? Also, the fact that you become more accepting of something over time, probably regardless of what it is, take people that go to prison, for example, they don't want to be in prison, I presume, but it gets to the point of you accept it and then it becomes your home. And a lot of times there are studies of prisoners that struggle with life outside of prison or outside of the military or anything that becomes a norm that becomes accepted because of the time that's invested into it. For sure. And I think that kind of leads us to the end of the story, right? The, the finale of when, when, when patient 23 goes home, what does he do? Well, he's repulsed, right? His time spent with the Kappa has been so great that he's like, I can't live here anymore. And then we go back to that opening line of you imbecile, you coward, you, you rotter. He can't stand to be around humanity anymore. And again, to your Shutter Island uh, interpretation or the Wizard of Oz interpretation of these were all just distorted ways of seeing people is when he sees people who, who they really are, is it just that disgusting and repulsive that it's worse than when we're dressed up to be the monsters to fit in? And and if we're taking that literal interpretation or even the figurative literal interpretation of Akutagawa that this isn't just a satire or his critique on Japan, but this is his own mental degradation that he in, was internalizing everything. He was in his you know room, his home by himself, writing feverishly, you know, contemplating life and his, his own life and what did it mean, how long it would go on. And then the fact that when he went out in society, maybe he just went to a coffee shop and, or, or, or he just went to get dinner or get the paper and he saw society and he was just repulsed by it of like, I've got to get back to my world because that is something that I understand because this I don't get. And you know what? I kind of understand that sometimes. Well, with the Meiji era came coffee shops and perhaps the ability to reflect upon the monsters of society. I don't know. Um, if we look at 
like you said, so kind of like that view of, of is this one man's psychological deterioration, which I thought we'd talk more about throughout this, but we touched on here and there. But but is it real? Is it not real? And when he sees Bag at the end visiting him, when he's in the is it the insane asylum at the end? When uh, he thinks he has the flower and he looks down and it's not there, right? That's mm-hmm. when we're beginning to question reality. That's when we begin to question how much of this was in my head. And remind you that this is all being told actually from the person who patient 23 told this story to as well, right? So how much of the story is also put through another lens, right? He says like, oh, I've reasonably repeated this story. Well, why is that there? Right. Did enough of this story get altered through the telephone game, through uh, (laughs) a sane man's view of what reality is and the way that he phrases things get changed enough from the insane asylum man's story that it's meant to be fantasy when maybe it was reality for this man? You know what I mean? That's very telling, too, of can an insane man understand a sane man or can a sane man understand an insane man i don't know but leave us a comment down below if you're insane or not (laughs) or if i'm insane (laughs) una and i are definitely insane yeah let us know if you understood us in which category you're in because that'll help us understand (laughs) (laughs) all right guys akutagawa talks down below again we spent so much time on this because it was important for us this is one of those top pieces of literature And honestly, it's one of the top pieces of literature that just isn't discussed enough for how good it is. Did we discuss absolutely everything? No. Did we get through everything on our mind? No, but but we tried to get as much as we could out here as this is a labor of love for us. We hope you enjoyed some of the time that you spent with us today. If you did, I'm going to leave a links and special shout out to our patrons who have supported us in large projects like this. If you'd like to learn more about that, check out the Patreon link down below. And again, thank you for spending time with us today. My name has been Una. Peace. Peace.